Hello and welcome to the New Ears Podcast, an auditory exploration of the art of the album. I'm your host, Jonathan Humphrey. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the album Perfect From Now On by Built to Spill. It was released in January 28, 1997, and was Built to Spill's third full-length album. It was also their first major label debut on Warner Brothers. This album holds a special place in lots of indie rock fans' hearts. It's often called an indie rock masterpiece and is known for its epic long songs. My guest today is Justin Clark, a friend and a musician, and we'll talk more after the show about where you can find him now, but we had a pretty good talk and uh, I hope you enjoy it. I'm sitting here with Justin Clark, and I think we're both pretty eager and excited to talk about this album. But before we do that, Justin, why don't you go ahead and tell anyone, you know, anything you'd like to promote, whether it's yours or anyone else's, or something you'd like to raise awareness about? I don't have anything specifically, or I am playing in a new band called Lionized. You can check that out. I was in another band called Maslow. We put out two EPs within the last year, and those are both on Bandcamp. So if you're interested, you can check those out. Sounds kind of experimental, weird, heavy, sludgy, kind of things like that. Not a good description. Probably doesn't sound good now. So, Well, that actually sounds pretty good to me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, excellent, man. Well, yeah, hopefully the, the audience, if it, you, you, know, you like what you hear today, go check those bands out, you know, promote art. I guess we can just go ahead and jump right into Build the Spills Perfect from now on. Before we go any further, I, I mean, I would say that the way this show works is sometimes guests come on and they pick an album that I don't even know. And sometimes... I have a list of albums that I know that I want to talk about, and this is this is an album I already wanted to talk about, and you were pretty eager to jump on it too. So uh, I, th- I think it goes without saying that we're both fans of this album. Correct, definitely. So uh, why don't we, why don't you go ahead and tell tell the listeners your personal history with this album? Okay, I started listening to Built to Spill in 2003. Some friends went away to school in Raleigh and had a chance to hear them and started talking about them. That's when I started checking them out. I didn't actually get into this album until much later on. I was more into Keep It Like a Secret, Universe, that generation of albums. I kind of forgot that they even existed in the 90s, really, to me, uh, until really within the last five years, maybe. And then definitely with uh, needing to get ready for this recording. I've always been a big fan. I've seen them twice. Once in 2003 at Cat's Cradle. I think and I was at that show. <laughs> I really, yeah, the one in October, I think that was the one. Yeah. And then I saw him again in, at the Orange Peel, and that was in 2008. Funnily enough, they actually, several months after that show, started going on a tour where they only did Perfect From Now On. So I, only missed that by a few months. Oh, I would have loved to see that tour. That would have been, huh. well, my, my personal history with this album is somewhat similar. I would say I probably started listening to Built to Spill around 2000, 2001. And immediately fell very heartily in love with Built to Spill and indie rock in general in that time frame. And perfect from now on, I, I got pretty much every Built to Spill album at that point. I think that was when Ancient Melodies had just been re- released and Universe hadn't been out yet. But I got every Built to Spill album within the like span of a year. And I think Perfect from Now On is the last one I got. And I consistently put it in one of my like 100 favorite albums of all time. One thing we will broach a lot on this show, our audience may already be sick of it, is genrefication. 
But, you know, you can subgenrefy lots of things and you can argue why you should or shouldn't. But as far as genre of indie rock with the emphasis on rock, I think this might be my absolute favorite indie rock album of all time. Yeah, I mean, obviously this album has a, a huge importance to me personally and i feel like there's a lot of things going on but i definitely you know i don't i you can use the term concept album very tightly or very loosely but this is definitely an album to me and not a collection of songs would you, would you agree with that do you feel that it's it's a complete piece i would agree and i think it i think it has more to do with lyrical content and kind of the space of time that he was in at that time yeah, yeah that's oh, so I, i'm sorry i cut you off go ahead go ahead yeah i was just going to say that's what to me it felt more like the music's consistent with this band. Uh, I think we can see that. And, and so much of this is kind of looking back and putting this into context of the times in which it was in. It was kind of crazy to me looking back that the fact that they incorporated the cello so much was such a huge deal. You know, to, to us, oh yeah, string instruments, great. Okay, yeah. The more layers, the better now. But back in 97, that was, huge. That was a huge deal. Um, oh, oh, yeah, definitely. And the Mellotron as well. Of course. But yeah, yeah, they were definitely doing different things. And I, I do agree that lyrically there's there's some this is a thematic album. But I think musically too, I, I think within one thing that, you know, gets broached about this album a lot is the length of songs. And I think there's a reason every song is so long. They're all trying to capture so much without I don't know, that that thought got away from me. But the length of the songs is intentional. There's a reason every song on this album is pretty long. Right. What, what does this album as a whole have, have mean to you? What, what kind of themes do you get from it? Well, I, I think right out of the gate, you kind of get punched in the face with this this idea of examining uh, your your place and time. You know, just the descriptions of eternity and that metaphor, mm-hmm. and just and that really just sets the tone for me for the whole album. There's obviously relationship issues sprinkled in, but I really feel like the whole time he's really battling. And that, that's something I kind of want to dive into a little bit deeper as we discuss the tracks. But I think that for me, that's the the overwhelming theme of, of, of this album is that he's really just trying to figure out what he believes and his place in the world. And, and, and then, like I said, sprinkled on top of that, it's just naturally some built and spill relationship issues. Oh, oh yeah. I, I agree completely. He, this album is all about the ethereal and the spiritual and trying to understand it in terms of the human. But again, just like you said, there's these little, a lot of people think this album is all about relationships and I can kind of understand that. And I think we'll, we'll talk more about that as, as this thing progressed. But I think it's like you're saying, I think the relationship aspect, you got to imagine he wrote all these songs in a certain time frame. If he's going through a bitter relationship, you can't help but seep in somewhere, but that's not exactly what this album's about. There's a lot of meaning in that. I think we hit some good points. Do you know about the recording process for this album? I think I I know about it. I don't know if you do, but I know our listeners would probably be interested in it. I I do have some knowledge, just for research sake of, of this podcast. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I found out, and I, I'm I'm sure we probably we live in the internet days. We've probably stumbled across some of the same sources. One thing that we can talk about is how much of a difference the fact that they recorded this album three times makes. <laughs> <laughs> For the listener, the story that isn't aware and doesn't care to look up Wikipedia or any other online resource, so this album was is like what it's their like third full length album. 
And at first, Doug Marsh is like, I'm going to record everything by myself but drums. And uh, apparently he did that, and he was like, nope, didn't work. I need I need the rest of the actual band. And so they recorded again with the whole band. And then in between traveling from Seattle, where they re- recorded, to Boise, where they live, Phil Eck, who's the longtime producer of Build a Spill, had the masters in his car, and they melted. So they went back, and they recorded it a third time. And I feel like all the intense guitar layering in this album just wouldn't not have come through if it weren't for that like i feel like that's what created some of the density of this album because how many times did they have to play these songs in a recording studio right you know what what about you any thoughts about the style other thoughts about the style and sound well this this is the first album where he finally decided to add two permanent members or at least at that time they were permanent members the drummer and i believe the other guitar player ploof and nelson Mm -hmm. last names so I remember reading an interview where he was discussing how that was the turning point for the band in terms of beginning to get tighter and not feeling so loose with all these interchangeable parts. You, you finally had people in there who were invested in the band yeah, that, and they didn't just see themselves as, as, as pieces. But that's I, I didn't read that interview, but that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense because while well, I was saying like this album has a lot, got a lot of d- dense instrumental layering, it doesn't feel loose. It feels very solid, like very on point at almost all times. Right. And I think like you were saying that we're, you know, the title of this album, Perfect From Now On, it it has to do a lot with time. Human's concept of time, human's concept of eternity. I think obviously the title is a line from the first song, but I think it speaks for the whole album in in a lot of different ways. Oh yeah, we were talking earlier about the uh, the length of the songs. I would like to point out that the shortest song on this album is 4 minutes and 52 seconds, and the longest is 8 minutes and 53, and I think a lot more of them are closer to the 8 minutes than the 4. Another thing that I did read, the songs ended up being that long primarily, and this is another thing, and I'm going to start referring to, to Doug Marsh as just Doug, because I feel like I got to know him throughout this process. <laughs> Fair enough. So for, from here on out, he's Doug. But in reading something that he was he was saying, he just said he couldn't stop playing when he got started. And these songs, a lot of times, ended up being two and three songs that he just kind of mashed together. Well, that's interesting because they definitely have that feeling of like small movements within giant things that work together, but strangely. We may have already mentioned at the top, but this was their first major label release. And I think that this is a brave album to put out as your first major label after the work you've done previously, I think. I agree. And and that was really, I, I was never really up to speed on who the record label was. So in researching this and, you know, and all you hear about the spill, and it's just one of the adjectives that drives me crazy is, indie you know all you hear is just this indie band this indie band but i mean they're on a major label and this was in the wikipedia so i mean this isn't uh, great knowledge that i dug out of anything but it, it was talking about how they were able to maintain a certain level of creative control that a lot of bands really aren't when they go to these major labels oh yeah definitely but and that was a question i had for you is, is kind of like why would that be what do you think in the in certain cases that these bands can pull that kind of thing off you know, it's it's a really weird thing, and it's something that's also relative of the time. Like, being on a major label now is a completely... I mean, it's so weird, but being on a major label now is a completely different scenario than it was back then. But I don't know the full terms of the agreement or built the spill, but what I imagine is that the deal they signed was, was one where they the label wasn't paying them as much money as they were paying other acts, so that they were like, oh, we got this band who's really talented and, and has gained a small cult following already, you know, if they blow up 
up, we have them in pocket. And if they don't, we're not paying that much to put out albums that will at least sell. Right. I kind of have a feeling that that's what the situation is. But I I can only speak from, you know, hearsay and, and what I can imagine the situation to be. Because this is a really... It's not really experimental in the grand scheme of music, but considering indie rock at the time and put this being a major label release, I think this is a, an experimental major label release for sure. And it's, it does baffle me sometimes how Warner Brothers was actually like, OK, there are two words that keep getting repeated on this album. Maybe there are more, but there are two words that stuck out to me. I want to know if they stuck out to you as well. Were there two words that you felt repeated a lot on this album? Yes. Yes, uh, I think I know what you're saying. Uh, yeah, so I got sun, obviously, <laughs> because we've kicked it in the sun, which we'll get to. But okay. also, the other one is he keeps referring to a specific sound. Yes. It, and, and he calls it the sound or that sound. And it shows mm-hmm. up in five songs. Yep. Five out of eight. So you can only help to think it's the same sound he's referencing. He never sounds positive about it. He always hates that sound. <laughs> like he's always upset by that sound. And I think as we get into the songs, we'll probably discuss what that sound could or couldn't be. But I just think it's funny that he keeps referring to a very specific sound. I mean, sound is a word you hear all the time, but it doesn't pop up in music like that heavy without just being an actual sound. Right. And, um, I mean, it, it was clear that he was addressing that. And I felt like the sound might not be consistent, though, because his delivery of that of that phrase it, within each song seems slightly different in there that the sound might not be a specific sound each time, but it's coming from a, the same source or what he deems to be a source of maybe a frustration or someone pushing against him or something like that. That was kind of the way I more of a broad kind of like, I almost have examples of, of that sound in that song that I kind of came up with. Oh, well then. Contextually. I mean, I, so we'll get to that each track, but, and you'll, and I, I'm curious. That was, cause that was one of the things I, I kept circling in all of these songs. Like, I've got to ask Jonathan what, you know, what the hell the sound is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was doing the same thing. And, you know, honestly, like I said, this has been one of my favorite albums for over a decade now. And there's plenty of times that I've gone long times without listening to it. And I think part of me always recognized the, the reoccurrence of him saying the sound, but really studying this album it just became glaring to me and so we'll get to the bottom of it and if we don't hopefully our listeners will i only have one last bit of information for for the general album talk but this album got amazing reviews everywhere but rolling stone (laughs) critical reviews they're all relative so you can't take them at base value but it's crazy that almost every other like music publication at its time gave it four star greater review and Rolling Stone's like three stars. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I thought this would kind of be a Rolling Stone darling at the time. I did think it was funny that Rolling Stone gave it three out of five. I kind of felt that it was only due to the fact of how integrated to some degree they were in the pushing of the, the grunge movement in the early 90s and, and how that was kind of starting to fade by that time in 97. I kind of felt like it was something they were kind of holding on to and they weren't ready to give much love to this new type of band that was still a rock band but there was elements in it that weren't so harsh maybe not harsh in a bad way you know speaking but well i think it's i mean honestly i think this album has very bitter tones it's it's a very bitter album but it's there's this certain kind of misplaced aggression that grunge music gets it's like it's different than something like punk rock where the aggression is very directed grunge has this very like lackadaisical type of aggression to it which is a, a weird contradiction but yeah there it was it was harsher tones but it also for a while you know in our younger days it was the the voice of a generation that had nowhere to go 
Yeah, I definitely think it's interesting that Rolling Stone was like three stars. I, I'm baffled as to it. I, I do have a, a few small tidbits that I found interesting enough to share. And, and I did have one other question for you. And I think it sets the tone, too, for all of this. But Pitchfork actually ranked this album. They did a, a top 100 albums of the 90s. They ranked this 22 out of 100, which I, I was astounded by. When you look at the, the full list and everything... Oh yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a fair though. I mean, it's, no, I, I'm oh, sorry. No, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I I just thought it was interesting because it was ranked higher than Weezer's self-titled album with the blue cover and Modest Mouse Once in Crowded West. And my question for you was: They received so much commercial success. Is it as simple as they were willing to kind of give in to their corporate counterparts on the label side to achieve that? Or cause it's not skill. It's not it's, talent. And I thought, I was like, I was like, it's, it's probably just as simple as that because you can tell their albums became so much more polished. I mean, look at one of some crowded West, you know, and, and then f- subsequent future albums for Modest Mouse. I mean, it, just the mixing. Well, the, the rumor, and again, this is, this is only rumor, but the rumor is, is that, cause you know, the Moon Antarctica was, look, what was their first major label and they kind of got a little bit more leeway with that, but that album kind of broke wide open as far as underground cultures. And then the next album they put out was the good news for people who love bad news. And that album took a really long time to put out. And the rumor that's been going around for a long time, and and it may have been confirmed, and I may just be an unaware source, is that they recorded the whole album and the studio is like, "Mm, no, we don't like this. Go back. So that's that's the whole rumor. So what that means is that, you know, honestly, if you listen to, uh, I can't remember his name right now, the guy from Weezer, he has a lot of he loves metal and he loves pop music. I mean, Doug Marsh definitely has some pop sensibilities, but the guy from Weezer definitely is very pop influenced. And that comes through in his writing. And I think that creates it to be more accessible. But in the case of Modest Mouse, I think they got manipulated to be more pop accessible. Because even I would say that earlier Modest Mouse is less accessible than early Built to Spill. I don't know if you'd agree with that statement. Absolutely. Modest Mouse has a lot of really punk rock influences in the early days that just kind of seep away once they go to a major label. I think it is just they were able to do a more poppy thing or they were encouraged to do a more poppy thing or they got polished into a more poppy thing. I was always baffled, you know, back in the day, Built to Spill and Modest Mouse toured together and I don't have anything against Modest Mouse. I enjoy tons and tons of their music, but I was always like, Doug Marsh is one of the best guitarists I've ever seen or heard. And I don't understand how more people don't love him. But that's always been my experience with the situation. I only can say that I think maybe some of the longer songs can tend to drive people away. Oh, yeah. And we'll get right. We'll talk about something of that in the very first track. But was there anything else you needed to say? Nothing I need to say, but can you explain the Neil Young? I'm not a Neil Young fan. I don't listen to Neil Young at all. But all I kept reading was Neil Young, Neil Young. Okay, well, I do think Doug Marsh is the Neil Young of our time. (laughs) I was starting that forever. One thing is, I love Neil Young. You know, most of my favorite music starts 77 or later, the year that punk broke. But I love Neil Young. And I think, first off, they both sing in really high-pitched voices that are also a little bit sharp. Right. So I think that's one of the comparisons. The second one is that they use metaphors that don't make much sense often. 
<laughs> they both have, the, and they're beautiful. They're not bad metaphors, but when you like take the time to sit and think about them, you're like, I don't know if I understand anything. I've got one for you. Yeah, I'm go. gonna point out. Oh, or not. I'm gonna. We'll wait till the track by track. But as uh, soon as we get to that track, I think it's gonna be really obvious which one's a Neil Young moment. As yeah, far yeah. As but, metaphors. But 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 even after me saying that, being like Neil Young uses bad metaphors, you were like, oh, okay, you're right. So I've um, got a bad metaphor written down in here. <laughs> See, great. It's they're weird metaphors too. They're always weird. And then of course yeah. there's the like. 20 plus minute cover of Cortez the Killer on the Build to Spill live album, which is just amazing. And it's, I think it's the way Neil Young wish he had done the song. But uh, I think that's the Neil Young comparison. I also think like he's been overshadowed by other songwriters like Neil Young was too. Neil Young often gets overshadowed, overshadowed by Bob Dylan or Paul Simon. And out of the three of them, Paul Simon might be my absolute favorite, but I do feel like Neil Young gets, gets overshadowed over the three of them. And I think of that whole indie rock time, you can think of like Isaac Brock from Modest Mouse, or you can think of, uh, I'm blanking on names really bad today, but you can think of the guy from Pavement or whatever, or Steve Malcolmus. But you don't, a lot of people don't think of, of Doug Marsh first. And I, I feel like that's another part of the Neil Young comparison. Is there is there anyone that you'd compare Doug Marsh to? Not really. I, I don't have anyone in particular. Maybe if I was more familiar with Neil Young, I could point to it because it seems that everyone else does. So it must be a, a great comparison. I'm just I've never been a Neil Young fan. I unfortunately I don't care for much music prior to my time on this earth, and that might be a horrible thing to say. But I just, for whatever reason, it just, it, it's hard. I understand. Like I was saying, most of my favorite music takes place after 77. So I totally, I totally understand that. And that's the thing about music is it's so, its experience is so relative to our experience. Exactly. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break, you know, have a word from a sponsor or whatever. And uh, then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about all eight tracks to Perfect from now on. Sound good to you? Yep. All right. Thanks. Stick around, everybody. back and we've been talking about perfect from now on and we're gonna keep talking about perfect from now on from now on uh <laughs> sorry i couldn't refuse that really bad joke we're gonna start doing the track by track right now and we're gonna start obviously with the first song because that's the best place to start when you're talking about an album and the first song's title is randy describes eternity I personally have a lot to say about this song, but not necessarily about meaning. I don't know for you, but I I feel like it doesn't entirely cover it, but the title of this song is pretty self-explanatory in a lot of ways. I feel like you could talk about this song for days. <laughs> for eternity? Uh, yeah, for eternity. I, compared to every other song on the album, I, I feel like as you go on, like you, talk, you can talk less about each song because this one pretty much sets it all up. You know, there's 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 some things here and there in the other songs, obviously, but like I, like I said at the beginning, I really feel like this is where the album starts and and just keeps going. And obviously, Randy described Eternity. I don't know if Randy was his actual name, but according to everything that I read, this was Doug's way of interpreting uh, 
a metaphor used to actually describe eternity. That's what I read too. Uh, he said that he kind of changed the words around a little bit so they'd fit the meter. But the interesting thing about that, and maybe you caught this too, is I've heard two different stories about it. I heard that Randy was a college philosophy professor of his, but I've also heard that Randy was a Christian camp counselor of his as a kid. And both of them make sense to me. Like it could have easily been either one because as I was a kid going to like Christian camp or, or stuff like that, I could easily see someone like having this like exp- explanation of eternity and be like, so do you you want to be good or bad you know and that's where i that's where i drew so much of an attachment to the song is i i felt like this was me because i remember christian camps growing up southern baptist I'm pretty sure I had an analogy or a metaphor for eternity described to me. Maybe not exactly like this, but you get the, the gist of it. Yeah, you, so just, you just replace the sphere and the feather and you kind of get the idea. Yeah, I feel like I, I too probably had something very similar to this. I, and I agree with you. Like, okay, so I, I have this weird feeling about this track. I feel like there is no other way in the world you could start this album. I also think that this is without a doubt Built the Spill's best album. I also think this song is not the song you use to introduce someone to Built the Spill. Like I've I've made I've given people this album and I've been like skip track one the first time, listen to the rest of it, and then come back and listen to track one the second time. Because I think honestly, in this song, this is the one or in this album, this is the song that has the least movements. While the rest of them have, like you were saying, there were bits and pieces that kind of got put together. This is one long droney song and, and movement. It doesn't change movements throughout the whole song. I mean, it builds and it backs backs off, but it's all the exact same movement. Yes, it, it's definitely the most straightforward. Uh, one of the things, you know, I try to, when, when, when interpreting these lyrics and stuff, I try to consider other people's thoughts and stuff. And obviously the the title of the album comes from this, this song, I'm Going to Be Perfect From Now On. I'm Going to Be Perfect Starting Now. But this is, if you want to look at this album as like a relationship metaphor or whatever, which I, I don't, like we were saying, there's definitely bits of that put in, but I don't think that's what the whole relationship is. One of the things I've always thought about this song is that one of the things like fairy tale and religion things, I don't know if kids of, of today are going to be told this as much, but you know, you get told you get married and it's perfect from now on you're married forever it's an eternity you're always married and it's perfect like that's kind of something that was drilled into my head as a young kid i don't know if, if that makes sense to you do, you do you get that at all i can definitely see that because the, the, the whole thing is he's like whoa eternity eternity and this and that's why again we, we talked about it earlier but that's why one of the one of the last lines of this song is stop making that sound if you if you interpret this song like this which i don't necessarily do but it's important to look at it in multiple ways if you interpret this song like that this whole song is him thinking about what forever means and then all of a sudden being like oh god forever stop that stop i don't know if if that's what people who think this is a relationship album thinks this song is about but that's what i get from it when i think about it through that lens i think my lens tends to not want it to be about relationships (laughs) well right no totally I, i i like i said i don't personally feel that way but it's it's a way that i can see this song right now and, and i agree and, and because so much of their you know vast discography and material is so based on his inability to find happiness in any situation and and you can see that in any of his interviews i mean he, he's he's more or less said that talking about our boy doug old doug we should have asked him to come on he uh, might have jumped on and could have maybe i found this to be interesting he always i read an interview where he said i don't really care about the lyrics i just kind of make up stuff to fit and i i don't believe that at all i i just don't 
I don't believe it either, but I, I did see that bit of information. I was just like, no, he cares about lyrics. He plays with them more than some other artists. Like he lets words hang for reasons that aren't that don't seem clear other than formality at times. Sure. But I don't think he doesn't care about them. He creates words, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Any any other thoughts you had about this song? I have one final one, but it's not really that important. Well, I, I think we have to address one thing, and for me, it's the the it's the biggest issue that we need to understand you know, as a way to kind of filter these lyrics going forward. What is his attachment to Christianity? Obviously, he, or, or not even maybe not even Christianity, but just religion as in he's searching for it. I, I can't decide if he's was born maybe a Christian or a religious, spiritual, and he's fighting against it, or he's just not into it. And, and so much of this is just sarcasm. I think there's truth in that. I, I think I definitely feel, and maybe this is just myself blitting through, I feel like he was, I mean, he's from Boise, Idaho. I can't help but imagine he was raised super Christian. And eventually around a certain time was like, I don't think this is right. I think there's times where he's like, I don't think Jesus is bad. I think Jesus is is great, but I don't think things about this is right. And that's that's the impression that I get from it. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's me throwing my own spin on it, because that's the way I feel about religion. I like Jesus. I think he said a bunch of cool things, but I don't think organized religion is very helpful. I would agree. And I think that's my biggest kind of to this day struggles. And that's why I, I feel so connected to the song and, and such a deep need to understand it more as we've kind of been forced not forced but to dive into it you know for the sake of this podcast but but we have to what's the sound there what do you think the sound is okay see i can't help but look look at the sound in relation to the next song on this album right and we'll get there eventually but i think that the next song is is the most this is a relationship song out of all of them and other people might argue but i think i think the next one's the harder to interpret other ways i think the sound is like some kind of belabored sigh or moan that just shows distaste where you're just like, I don't know if anyone that's been in a relationship where like, you know, everyone gets to that point where there's some topic that you bring up that your significant other gets bored with. They'll let out that sigh and you'll be like, that one sigh that drives me crazy. That's like, just shut up. And so that's kind of where I feel about that sound. What do you feel about the sound? (laughs) I I agree uh, for the most part. For some reason, I I imagine I don't know if this is the proper term for it, but a raspberry, you know, you're right. kind of like, <laughs> I kind of imagine that for this song. For if you actually, if you're listening to the song and following along with the lyrics, and and I'm imagining this like kind of sarcastic undertone. I just for some reason I just felt the sound was maybe something like that, and maybe I just thought that was funny. But I, I'd agree more with you if I if I had to make an honest, you know, solid interpretation of it. That this is kind of like what we were talking about in the break when your significant other roll their eyes at you this is the sound that kind of perpetuates that yeah exactly that's what it it feels like and of course you can take that sound doesn't have to be about a significant other i mean it could just be with any like a family member you know there's there's a lot of places that sound could come from so we don't have to limit to significant other but that was just the easiest way to explain it for me at least my my final thing that i'd like to say about this song is i have throughout my life wished i could be a musician and just not but I have always wanted to do a cover of this song. I want it to be slowed down, just like, just barely slowed down a little bit. And I want it to be over-instrumentalized, like, you know, a lot more like violins and cellos and, and synthesizers and stuff. And I want for there to be at least four singers. I want a girl to be singing. I want someone to be screaming. 
I want someone to be yelling, and I want somebody to be whispering. And that's the cover of this song I've always wanted to do. And so if anyone's listening to this and wants to make that cover, it'd be great. But I, I don't know, can you picture that with this song slowed down just a little bit, but like the vocal anger turned way up? I'm going to be in on that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's... You find the other people, we'll, uh, we'll put it together. All right, that sounds absolutely great. I don't really have anything else to say about this. I mean, it's definitely the place this album has to start, though. Absolutely. So what we're going to do now is move on to track number two, I Would Hurt a Fly. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that this was a single for the album. Seems more like a single, but I'm not for sure. For some reason, I, I have it in my head that this this song was a single. I also, I've noted that out of out of this album, it was really hard for me to, there is no worst part of this album. I think this album is pretty flawless, but I do have this noted as one of the three tracks that I think, if a listener was like, what three Built the Spill songs should I listen to on this album? I Would Hurt a Fly is definitely one of those three for me. I would agree. It's beautiful it's got amazing movements it's fun lyrics everything about the song is great that the guitar at the very end is just incredible and the the drums in this song aren't overly complicated but work perfectly i would agree on the sound i, I love the way the drums start at the beginning it's just a solid backbeat mm -hmm. the, the guitars at the end are just i don't even know how to describe that movement at the very end it could the way it just kind of switches from the rest of the song but I, one of the terms i read i looked up a couple of like reviews for this album some reviews were actually current as in current at 97 98 when this came out and people had a little bit of time to review it and then others that were like 10 or 15 year post reviews something somebody said about this song was chamber pop i don't know what chamber pop is but it sounds awesome so <laughs> I, I like it i i love the cello I, i've always been a big fan i, I hope my kids play string instruments but yeah i, I love this song and Oh, that cello is beautiful in this song. It's really moving. So so what do you think this song is about? I mean, I obviously, I said in the last song, I see it as, as the most relationship-y song on the album. But what about you? It's definitely a relationship song. I actually don't see this the most relationship-y, if that's anything of a word, <laughs> no. song on the album. But we all get what we're going for. This is definitely the first song on the album. Granted, it's the second song on the album, where the first bad Neil Young Weird, bad, good metaphor shows up. Fingernails across the moon. Fingernails across the moon. Exactly. <laughs> I, I can't just. I can't decide if that's bad because I have no feelings on the moon at all. I feel like in Doug Marsh's mind when he said that line, he's like, "If fingernails on a chalkboard sound bad, imagine them on a moon." <laughs> like, I just feel like that's the thought that went through his mind. But for some reason, it sits right with me. And I can understand, like, you know, I've had a lot of years to think about it. Like, it is a really weird and kind of ridiculous line. But something about it sits right with me for some reason. I love it. I absolutely love it. And when I say weird and bad, I mean those in very affectionate ways. But... I, I definitely like it. I just can't, you know, I have no attachment to it because like, it's kind of like one of those, if a tree falls in the forest, but no one's around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. Fingernails on the moon means nothing to me. Right. Well, <laughs> I don't think that I would hear that. 
Yeah. Um, like we were saying earlier, or this is de- that that's definitely you you called it out, but that's definitely a Neil Young metaphor that pulls the because it's like fingernails across the moon. It is. It, it assumes it's it's something that we're not really have any idea of what it what it should be, and assumes that we all know what it is. Obviously, this song talks about the sound frequently. I mean, the first line in the song is, I can't get that sound you made out of my head. So do we think this is the the exact same sound from song one, or is this a different sound? I think this is where I I originally thought the sound of the the desperation sigh was present. I can't, I I think when he says, I can't even figure out what's making it, it shows like his level of interest in that source at that point. I see that point entirely. The way I feel about this song is that I read a lot of people being like, oh, this song is about someone who you think is nice, but they're not nice. They're actually a bad person. But that's not the tone I get from this song. The tone I get from this song for me personally is that this is someone that's being taken for granted and being ignored and, and feels lonely about it and he's tired of being taken for granted that's why you know that's why the whole refrain is the play on the terms like oh that person doesn't have a mean bone in their body he's like no wait there is one mean bone in my body and you're the one that's pushing it forward yeah i wish i disagreed with you so it'd be more interesting but i I feel the exact same way yeah because it's he's not he doesn't sound like the narrator of the song we can assume it's doug and we can assume that it's not but the narrator of the song doesn't sound like he's saying oh i'm always a terrible person i just wear a mask he sounds like I'm a good person, but if you push me, I will hurt a fly. So yeah, you can definitely see when when it kicks into the the chorus with that that he's he's just pissed at that point. He's kind of like, you know what, fuck it. Yeah, I, I love the line though. It's connected to the problems that I won't take for an answer. I, I just think that's one of the, he's got so many lines throughout his his entire collection of songs that I, but that's like always been one of my favorites. Oh yeah, that me too. Like the refrain, I mean honestly, the lyrics to this song aren't a lot. There aren't a lyrics to this, a lot of lyrics to this song and they're all pretty easy to understand. So it's not like we need to decipher them for for an audience, but I just this is a song where it's very compact and to the point and I think I think he hits it just right. Like there's a mean bone in the like just like you were saying. There's a mean bone in my body and it's connected to the problems that I won't take for an answer. And I think that that goes to further the arc, the the ideas that we both have is that it's like there, there is something that will that will stop this and and you're pushing it forward. The the problems that I'm not going to accept are what's causing this mean bone to show. You know, I don't really have too much more to say about this song. It's it's a beautiful song and it's epic, but I think I think it, a lot of times, lyrically, it speaks for itself. What, what else did you want to say about it? I just love the last bridge section where he says, let you go to sleep feeling bad as me, let you go to sleep feeling bad. I, I think, and you know, everyone can attest to this in relationships. They always tell you, don't, you know, don't go to sleep in anger and, and to try to resolve things before you go to sleep. But he's just saying, I don't care. <laughs> go to sleep. Yeah, like- <laughs> I hope you feel bad. And, and I, I love it. And that might be mean, but that's the whole point of the song. And that's why it's great. I agree, because he's he's been feeling, according to my interpretation, he's been feeling taken for granted and taken advantage of, and he feels bad every night. Why shouldn't she feel bad one night, or he, or whoever he's singing about? Why shouldn't they have one night of bad sleep compared to their hundreds? All right, we're going to move on to track three, Stop the Show.
This song is is one of the angriest so not the angriest, but one of the angriest songs on the album. It's a pretty angry song. I didn't feel like it was angry, but I, I will say that as soon as I started reading the lyrics in conjunction with listening to the song, I wrote in really bold letters relationship at the top <laughs> of the page. This to me is the this is the relationship song. I can de- I can definitely see that. Because that's what the show is. That's that's what he's stopping. The, the show is the relationship. And I think if you point to the lyrics where he says, you know, you don't tell me anything. That's not a dream. It's a big lie. He's just saying, you know what? I've just come to the realization. And I think this is such a carryover from the last song that, you know, the last song, he was just getting tired of it. He's lashing out finally. He's standing up for himself. And now he's just like, now that we've gotten this far, we can't go back. So here's me telling you everything. That makes a, def- a lot of sense to me. I got something from this song that I know was not explicitly. It's not in the lyrics to the song, but just something that, you know, because music's so open to interpretation. There's something that I got from this song that I didn't see any proof of in the song, but just felt it. And I think, well, yeah, it could very easily be referring to someone you're in the middle of breaking up with or about to break up with. There's this, and and this, this sense applies to that too, but there's this feeling in this song about the moment you become past your prime. I, I don't know if that feeling is just something I'm picking up on for some weird reason, or if there's any hints of that to you. I mean, it sounds like you're talking, we could be talking about a relationship that's gone past its prime, obviously, but I think, I think it just is kind of like being past your prime in general at times. And again, I, I, I think you can definitely look at it that way. I, I guess just knowing what I know about Built to Spill, it's just hard for me to not see it <laughs> any other way than him just going through another failed relationship, you know, seemingly. Oh, yeah, of course. I don't and he just, and he hates this person. I mean, just it, when he says they knew they had it coming, it's just such, it's such an implication that they've been shitty all along. Yeah. It just took them a while. And, and that's what he's talking about when he says, and when you know, they'll stop the show because they know you know. That sums up everything to me because it just says that they've realized they can't get away with what they're doing anymore. They're not going to stand for it. And because they can't, it's seemingly over. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. This is, well, again, like I said, I don't think there's a weak track or weak part of this album, but this is not, this is one of the parts of the album that I kind of pass over a little bit more than other parts. And I, I'm not really sure why it is. I don't have as much to say to it because it, it feels like whatever he's saying, it's a direct attack. Like he's flat out telling someone, nah, you can stuff it. Yeah, he's definitely at the end of his, his wits on this one. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. Was there anything else you'd like to add about this song? No, I really feel like this is the most straightforward song on the entire album in terms of lyrically. And and that's why I think, and it sits in the valley of the album, and that's why it might get skipped over sometimes in terms of relevance or importance, because the end of this album, the last few songs, they're just so solid. It's just so hard not to jump to them after you finish the first two. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and move on on to uh, the next track. And this next track is track number four, Made Up Dreams.
Now, I can't say with any kind of cer- certainty that this is still the case, but for the longest time, this was my absolute favorite song on this album. It's marked as a stand-up track, and I love this song. We can go ahead, we'll get into it as we talk about the song. He obviously mentions the sound again in this song, but I think a lot of this song is about discerning what is real and what's not. I think so. I think so, and I'm so glad that this is your favorite because it's one of my least favorites, so I- I'm excited that you're, you'll be here to kind of pick up the enthusiasm on this end of the song. Oh, really? I'm interested to know why it's what about it makes it one of the uh, lower parts of the album for you only that only in comparison to everything else it, it's <laughs> not it's not that the song itself is bad it, the lyrics are great as usual I, I mean the song is is solid throughout it's, it's it's so weird for me as a musician to not want to talk about the music but it the music of Built to Spill is just it just is what it is and it's just good and I, I so the song musically is great but and the lyrics are good I just like I said in comparison to what's come before it and what about to happen after it's just it gets lost for me and i can totally understand that i think my thing with it is i think out of all this album i feel like somehow i relate to this song the most there's so many so many small pithy lines like it takes a lot to make you crazy and a lot is always going on i feel that way like all the time and then there you know my other my other idea of what this song is about is is something that you know as a creative type is something that i feel is is somewhat a message in my own work and it's that we're all always dying from the moment we're born like that's why there's that line that i'm already nothing you just noticed me fading and lines like that it just is like as soon as we're born we we start dying we're we're all fading eventually mm-hmm. and i the line right after that takes a lot to make me crazy and a lot is always going on i I love that. And I, I feel like it's still kind of in the same vein of what we've been talking about, that he's just really kind of over whatever it is in his life at that time that's going on. And this is another, again, another reference to this, that stupid sound. Yep. <laughs> See, that's what I was saying earlier. Like every time, almost every time he references that song it, or the sound, it is, it is not in a positive way. That's and this time it's stupid. Yeah. Like, it, it hasn't, it, it, before he just couldn't figure out what it is. He just knew he didn't like it. But now he's just like, listen, that's just stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's just like utterly like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> but, and, and this is the first song on the album that he has made up a word. Dryology? Dryology. It, unless that is a word. I mean, I, I'm sure it's something, but it just doesn't seem I, I don't, I don't quite know, right. I don't know if it is an actual word word i do know that before i 100 knew the lyrics of the song i always thought the line was triology which is even more why i relate to it because i've always made the joke that on my tombstone i'd want it to say he tried so I'm, i was all for triology you know i read it's so funny that you said that because i was just about to throw this in there but i was reading one of those 10-year reviews that someone did mm-hmm. on this album and one of when the person who was assigned to this song he said the exact same thing. And he said it set him up. Like he had just like the time in his life, he was like graduating high school, going into college. He, triology was like his like mantra for <laughs> everything. And then when he was doing that 10 year review, that's when he realized that it wasn't triology. It was <laughs> triology. And he said he felt like his life had just never meant anything. Oh God. I didn't have that quite that same reaction when I realized it was triology, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't think he was being, you know, <laughs> right, right. He was kind of tongue in cheek, but it, I just thought it's hilarious that, you know. Well, it's uh, it's an easily misinterpreted word, seeing how it's not a word. <laughs> well, then does that mean that you thought the terms before it were try as well, where he says dry lines on me, dry history, dry 
triology. No, no, I thought those were dry, and then I thought it was <laughs> triology. Okay. Because I, I, like I said, like when when I do look at it through the lens that this album is about relationships, and and I don't necessarily, but when I do look at it through that lens, he's definitely the victim of this relationship, right? Like that, I think that's what any if you're looking at it like it's a relationship, he's if definitely the victim. If you're looking at it from his perspective, definitely. Yeah, right from his perspective, and so even more sense for him to be like, I've tried, I've created a science of trying, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So that's kind of why I've always interpreted that line. But there's just so many things like nobody wants to hear what you dream unless you dream about them, like how selfish we all are and how self-involved. At that time, the American society was pretty self-involved and it's only gotten worse since then. So there's a lot going on in this song that means a lot to me outside of a relationship context. I, I do not feel like this song is really about the relationship context. I do. Like I said before, I think it's about how every day we die a little bit. Every morning when you wake up, you're not the same person that woke up the day before, and you won't be the same person that woke up the next day. I thought it was so telling in the one of the last stanzas where he, he goes on to talk about no one wants to hear what you dreamt about unless you dreamt about them, and he says, "Tell them anyway, <laughs> yeah, and just yeah. make and just make it up as you go." Meaning, if you want to get any kind of connection in life, you've almost got to fake it. Yeah. And, and and to him, or that's what I got from it, that he was basically saying that to really feel like you have any connection to a person, he's at the end of his ropes and he feels now he just kind of has to fake whatever that connection is just to sustain it. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely see this. It's it's really hard for me to say too much more about this song because I do. I Like I said, it's one of the standout tracks for me and it's so everything about it lyrically is so on point for me. It really is. But is there anything else you'd like to add about this song? I think that's it. All right. Ready, ready to move on to the good ones. <laughs> All right. Well, I believe on the vinyl version, this is where we flip sides. I don't have the vinyl version, but I sure wish I did. So we're going to go on to track number five, and that is Velvet Waltz. I think this is the beginning of the sun imagery of this album. Could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure this is where the whole sun start stuff starts. I think it shows up a time or two. <laughs> when you left it in the sun, it was a great mistake. What you kicked it in the sun? I don't know. No, that's kicked it in the sun. But he says velvet. Wall. He says something about it here too. I count. I count eight in this song. <laughs> there, yeah, there's eight. Yeah, and that's just the end of the song. <laughs> right. He right. doesn't even mention it in the beginning. Right. It's it's all towards that like last movement, right? Yeah, and I have something I want to uh, talk about as far as that goes. But we can start at the beginning unless you just want to jump around. No, let's just jump around. Go ahead and say what you needed to say. Okay, I think we have to, and I couldn't find anything on this, and I wanted to know so bad. But the lyrics at the end, they had to be written after the second recordings were destroyed because the ending of the song has to be more or less about that if you read it it says you took all that moment and you left it in the sun <laughs> now it's gone because you left it in the sun it was a brave idea didn't mean no harm now it's burnt because you left it in the sun it's yeah. a great mistake how could you have known the temperature, the distance of the sun? It does. It does seem like it absolutely had to have been included in the third record because it does seem very self-referential to that whole accident and that great, great mistake. I, I so badly wanted it to be written before that. Yeah, I mean, it really... I wanted to believe that he wrote that and then that happened. 
(laughs) And it was just this awesome moment. And it didn't seem awesome right then, but us looking at it 18 years later, it just seems awesome. <laughs> it just worked out somehow. Yeah, I, I could I could see that actually happening. Because one, one of the interpretations that I saw floating around is that if you take this album not as a relationship to a girlfriend, but a relationship to humanity as a whole, and if you go on the, the concept of God, like some people think that this part of the song is referring to humanity as the great mistake that got left in the sun. And that, that because things that matter to us are the distance and temperature of the sun, that that stuff that created our life. So their argument, and not necessarily mine, but their argument is that this, we are the great mistake that got left in the sun. I could definitely see that. It, it, this song to me just says so much. I mean, it's so many things could come from it. I mean, you, if you want to be completely literal with it, I think the beginning harkens back to being upset about a failed relationship, but it can mean so many different things. I feel like the ending can only be about the destruction of the recordings, but it's still a great metaphor for just something precious that's been not taken care of and, and subsequently uh, destroyed and, and just what that does. And I, I kind of, to me, some some of this felt like I, you can read a lot he that he was kind of struggling with even just the music process, being in a band and, and the everything that comes with that, the expectations that you have to continue to live up to, especially since at this time he was only just bringing in permanent members so before this it was all on him and and that was something that he he mentioned as well is that when the other two guys came in and they became permanent members you know they started helping like with touring and merchandising and he wasn't having to do everything any longer i can only imagine that was a huge relief for him i will say that the tone of this song to me has this kind of blissful bitterness like it's not an overdriving and angry bitterness it's kind of this like bittersweet i hate to use bittersweet but there's a bitterness to this song but it's played like softly and gently yeah i agree and this is actually my favorite song overall on the album especially musically i mean i i I just think i mean a beautiful maybe is a horrible word to use but i I really just i I think it's the prettiest and it's so sad and melancholy but i mean i I of course find that kind of thing beautiful i just i just really love it i I can't really stress that enough in terms of just listen i I think you can listen to it instrumentally and it's just a great song oh yeah i would i would agree Uh, i will say probably my favorite lyrics in this song is you better just enjoy the luxury of sympathy if that's a luxury you have that's such a beautiful line it is and and i have to and i don't think we've mentioned this before but in my my opinion what makes Doug so great is his delivery at times the way he the way he says something I mean because if you take that line the one that you just read and you really listen to how he says it it means so much more it's so much more impactful and it's it's like the way that and I think the best delivery he has in the song is when he says you thought of everything but some things can't be thought and he finishes that next line and I just the way he says it, it I just chills is it, it's one of those kinds of moments. Well, right. Now I know exactly what you're talking about because when he repeats it, he's like, you've thought of everything, but one thing you forgot is you're wrong. And the delay in between you're wrong and the way his voice slowly rises while he's saying wrong, it yeah. puts a lot of, of emphasis right there that works really well. And I really think... And he's a great guitar player. I mean, you, that can't be stressed enough. Oh, he's his, one of his, my favorite guitar players of all time. I think he's one of the most underrated guitar players ever. But I think lyrically, you know, and just vocally, maybe not the best singer, obviously, 
but just his delivery and the lyrics that he writes that he obviously cares about despite what he says. Unless, yeah, I think here and there he might play with some words and not really care, but for the most part, he's he seems like a very OCD person. And most musicians are perfectionists. So I, I got to believe he's he really does care about everything he's doing. I would agree. I don't really have... this. Is, I'm, it's interesting that this is one of your favorite songs on the album. It's funny that it's worked out because Velvet Waltz is, is not one of my favorite songs. It's so musically beautiful and moving, but it doesn't get to me like some of the other songs on the album. Again, like I said, I don't think there's a bad point on this album. I think this is still an amazing song, but it's interesting that one of my favorite songs is one of your least and vice versa. <laughs> so um, I guess. Yeah, totally. Well, you got anything else to add about this song? No, no. I think people just need to go and listen to it. <laughs> it speaks for itself. I don't need to say anything. Right. Okay, well, I guess we're going to move on and play a little bit of Out of Sight. I have a feeling we might be coming up against a wall here, but this is my third and final standout track of this album. I love this song. I feel like this is most aggressive song on the whole whole album, both lyrically and, or not lyrically, both guitar playing wise and in vocal range. Lyrically, it's not necessarily the most aggressive, but his vocals on this song and the guitar playing on the song is the most aggressive on the whole album, I think. I would agree with that. I think he really delves into some serious issues in this song, and I think that can't be under stated enough yeah and of course we get to the sound again because what a sight what a sound i feel like the sound's different this time this I, is one of my this is one of my times where i'm like okay it, he's referencing the sound and he's doing it from a perspective of there's still something bothering me but now it's this yeah oh yeah i could i could see that too but it's it's still funny that he still used a sound like he's still referencing a specific sound without saying what it is which, right. is, which is what's going on through here but i mean i feel like I feel like a lot of this song is about, again, relationships, not necessarily with with a significant other, but with with people in general. Like, I feel like throughout the course of this song, he's still furious with this person or these people. But he's also like, I kind of got to forgive them their faults because I this isn't the life any of us would have chosen. So, I mean, I think that meaning is kind of just right there on the surface for this song. And there's so many great little lines like, I know that you'll get yours when you get empty. It's so close. <laughs> like, I love little lines like that that are so bitter. I would agree with a lot of that. I, I think this song actually, to me, seems to be similar to Untrustable. And it's like a companion piece to it, kind of setting the stage for it lyrically, because there's a line that says, you wouldn't be you, or you wouldn't be if you could choose. And that kind of gets, that's not verbatim in Untrustable, but it would say, wouldn't be the way you feel if you could choose in Untrustable. So I feel like they're, they're kind of a brother and sister piece. Musically, you know, it just it has that ebb and flow of, of all built as well songs, but I really kind of felt, and this is again me looking through a lens of personal experience, that it had a lot to do with at this time he's he's lashing back out on maybe how he was raised. And the expectations from that and the things that someone might use to make you feel bad. 
And it's funny to him that you would use something maybe like faith to make someone feel bad or, or force them to do something that maybe they don't think is quite right. Well, and it's interesting you say that because that wasn't necessarily my interpretation of the song. But as you said that, I was fe- seeing how I feel felt like that ties into the very next song. And we'll talk about the next song. But since it came up, you know, I feel like in a way there's a line in, in Kicked It In The Sun who's like, your master plan was so, so like, I feel like it's that same kind of thing. Like, Oh, you're, you're young and this is the idea. And then you start to see maybe this wasn't that good of an idea. That's uh, the song before is something we missed. And maybe I'd like to go back, but it, it also connects into these three songs or this idea is there's that line, a bad idea gone funny, which I always interpreted maybe, maybe the audience and maybe even you might not understand this statement, but there's, I like to call a certain type of, of joke, dead horse comedy. I don't know if that does that make any sense to you not necessarily but i think i might understand what you're trying to get at it's it's when you repeat a jokes for so long that it stops being funny and then it comes back around to being funny again <laughs> it was like okay for for example for anyone that maybe watched family guy when it first aired there's like the one episode where peter's running home and he stubs his like toe and then there's literally like a three minute scene where he cries in pain and then takes a deep breath and then cries in pain and then t- and i t- i consider that dead horse comedy because you're beating a dead horse but i love dead horse comedy and i kind of feel like a bad idea gone funny i've always thought of it as dead horse comedy but then when you take it in context of this song and this then kicked it in the sun maybe that's exactly what he's talking about maybe he's like this idea that was everything when we were young whether it be religion or, or something else now it's just kind of funny that that was everything i i can see all that i think some of the things that i noticed were really just starts at the beginning he says raised unright so uptight why blame you? You wouldn't be if you could choose. There's another line that he says, what a way to bring people down. And I think that's that's where he's he's kind of saying, you know, like, it seems weird that you would use something like, uh, you know, something that's supposed to be so positive as a, a faith or a spiritual experience. And you try to use that against someone to kind of force them into the life that you would you would want them to lead. And, and I think he's trying to say that a lot of these people who would feel this way were raised this way. And if they hadn't been raised that way, obviously, you know, maybe they're outlook would be completely different and the world would be a different place i think that's a very very valid point about this song i really i i love when i love when the refrain kicks in in this song because it does start off kind of slow and and a little bit like the guitar line is drawn out and then right when it's like but why blame you you wouldn't be if you could choose and that that hard guitar kicks in and and he's almost screaming he's not quite screaming but he's almost screaming that refrain of the most of the time it's out of sight it hit me today like mm-hmm. I, I love the way that kicks in because you you like the first time I ever heard that song, I wasn't expecting that there. Like that was a really all of a sudden just, oh, wow. Like it kicks in really hard. And then it, it has this like bouncy, uplifting kind of poppy sound. And then it goes back into this the soft slow and then kicks back in one last time for that really hard, aggressive refrain and I, I just think it works it, everything about it works so perfectly it's definitely one of those points in this one of their songs where you feel like if he felt like he had the vocal capability of screaming he'd probably do it there oh yeah oh definitely definitely and i'm not saying he doesn't but i think he might feel that he doesn't or for the sake of the song or for their you know their the overall sense of who built the spill is it might not fit for them but i i kind of get the feeling sometimes that i bet he even tried to scream this yeah I bet one of those recordings, there's a scream there. (laughs) That one's the one that melted in the sun. 
<laughs> it's yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't have anything really else to say about this song. I, again, if any listener is like wants to go back and and listen to the three songs that each one of us find to be the best songs, this this is one of them for me. It's this one. It's made up dreams, and it's I would hurt a fly. But that's. That's all I can really say anymore about this song. Let's go ahead and move on to track number seven, the the penultimate song, Kicked It in the Sun. Obviously, the song kind of continues the sun imagery and, and theme or whatever, but this song has a lot of movement changes and and just structural changes, and it's very far-reaching. Yeah, and I've, I've got to ask you, Kicked It in the Sun, what is that? I, I, I'm having a hard time. For some reason, out of everything else that I've read, just kind of really honing in what he's trying to get at. I think to me, and this is another thing that you could see as a bad metaphor, but to me, it's just like the, the kick is implying force and speed, but the sun is implying a final destination. That's not good. So not necessarily a person like a project or anything that you've kicked in and went with full force, but the direction you took it to was straight to the sun where it's going to burn up and die. I, for some reason, I kind of saw it more as uh, the, the opposite and it being like you kicked it. You know what I mean? Like you were you were kind of relaxing and chilling, meaning like this person was sitting back and just, you know, like somebody who just goes and lays out. It just seems very time-wasting and meaningless of an exercise to just go lay around in the sun. What and I- that's kind of what I drew from it that he was trying to say. Like he's saying it was wrong, it was rude, but you just kicked it in the sun, you know, and just to say like, they weren't really concerned, overly concerned with this person and what they were doing and how they were making them feel. They were just kind of going about what they did. Yeah, I can see that. And I feel like the first verse especially lends to that where he's talking about tiny TVs on at three. It's so serene. It's just kind of a lazy afternoon. And another note about that is I always assumed that there were, they were names and female names. But the line is there's this feeling from Ada to Irene. And they, mm-hmm. are, they are both female names. Apparently... Those are both neighborhoods or streets in, in Boise, Idaho, and they're like one of the more like still American middle class, like the old idea concept of middle class, not what we live in now. Mm-hmm. So apparently that's kind of what those lines mean. And he's talking geographically about this area that time is almost forgotten. It's still pleasant and it's still nice and it's still the American dream hasn't died there yet, I guess. I was just going to say that's 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 awesome bit of information. I, I couldn't find anything. I, I was taking the, the tiny TV reference to suggest that maybe those were TV characters. And I, I started looking up TV characters with those names. And I just I mean, you can find a slew of them, especially <laughs> yeah. Irene. But and then I just kind of was like, well, maybe that's not what he means, and I'll just move on. There's other things to look into, but I'm glad that you you pointed that out. That's that's good to know. Yeah, and it, it definitely goes along with kind of your theory too. Like you know, a nice suburban neighborhood where you kick and relax, and it's okay. And I think that's interesting. I, coincidentally enough, there's streets named Ada and Irene in Chicago as well that I pass quite frequently. I also one thing about this song to me, like a lot of this album, he says you, and it seems like he's directing it to someone else that's not the narrator. There are times in this song where 
where I feel like he's using second-person narration, and the you actually refers to him. I don't know if, if that's just me being crazy, but there are definite lines in this song where I feel like he switches back and forth between first-person and second-person narration. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I, I It's kind of a hard song to follow at times for, for that reason. Yeah, oh yeah, and this is definitely like you were saying, some of these songs were bits and pieces that came together. This is definitely the song that has the most movements. This and the next one, definitely. Uh, yeah. One of my one of my favorite lines in this song, I think maybe it'd be be nice to dissect and we can we can sit here and try to figure it out. But I love the breakdown where he's like, we're special in other ways, in ways that our mothers appreciates. And then all of a sudden there's like that guitar bend where he's like, that net does not make me feel safe, which I think is beautiful. And I think he's obviously like metaphorically referring to a safety net, but I, I don't understand where the metaphor fits in with, with the rest of the song. Do you, do you get that? Or is it just kind of one of those bad metaphors? Yeah, I think it's one of those good, bad metaphors that I'd love to talk to Doug about it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I don't think he's calling in at this point. Since we're on song seven. I, I think for me, I read an interview and it really kind of, and he was, and this was an interview 12 years after this album was written. And he said something and it really made me think about this song. And he says, he, he's talking about how, you know, everything in life, you know, even like music as great as, as he loves it and as much as he loves it, it's still hard. And he says, that's it's that way with everything there's nothing that is just pure enjoyment and that really stuck out to me as is this song it, it was like that quote 12 years later in an interview about another album kind of he was still you know grappling with this kick it in the sun i i think that makes a lot of sense that's really great interview catch because there is this like everything's easy and serene but even that's not good so that, that's like the backbone of this song in a lot of ways mm-hmm. yeah but yeah there are, there are a lot of movements in this song like the music changes left and right as as we talked about in the last song there's that whole line he or there that whole part before the the thing it's like he, he seemed so unashamed of how he operated blah 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 his master plan was so so you know that this is another thing where people some people take that to be about god because there's another line like he woke up late that morning and the sun had been turned off and people people like to interpret that about god too i didn't necessarily get those lines from I didn't get that from those lines. Like that's one of those things where I think he's turning from first person to third person. I think he's talking about himself. Like, oh, in that moment, I seemed so unashamed when I should have been so ashamed. I've made so many bad choices. I actually really agree with you there because I, I kind of felt like it was one of the few times where he's he's doing a little self reflection and he's I mean, it's like maybe I could have handled that better. You really suck, but I could have handled that a little better. Yeah, I, I feel like it's one of those moments where he's he's ready to not assign one hundred percent of the blame to his life to someone else or some other external source, and he's ready to own up to about twenty percent of maybe the bad that's happened or, or things that he perceives to be uh, unsatisfying. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that's very much it's coming to terms with, yeah, I may not be the one at major fault, but I'm I don't get to walk away clean. And, and I love it. I, I, I have to say, and this just sets up the next song because I love it how he, it's something happened. And, and see, I don't know if he how they plan these albums, you know, in terms of setting the songs up in order. I, I just want to believe that he knew all along he was going to do this order because I really feel like you hear this song and he's really still upset, but he's ready to, like I said, he's ready to own up to it. And then something happened between this song and the next one. And he's just like, never mind. You know what? You're just not worth it again. I, I agree with that. And I feel like 
Well, I'm going to say this, and then I, is there anything you'd like to add before I say this and we start moving on to the next one? No. Well, then, yeah, I'd like to say that not only is he kind of like, oh, wait, no, you're still you're still the asshole. Not me, you. But at the same time, he's also letting it go the most out of the whole song in the next one. And it, it may not be lyrically, because lyrically he's being pretty honest, being like, well, these are the reasons this didn't work. But musically, I feel like, I feel like the song that, that we're going to go ahead and, and play a small clip for the audience for which is track eight, the, the conclusion of Perfect From Now On. I think this song is the lightest feeling musically. I feel like it's the least angry feeling song on the album. So before you, you keep, you can sit with that for a minute and we'll take a, take a small sample of the last song, Untrustable, part two about somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I think this song is uh, this song is is fun live, but this is this is the only way to end this album. I really truly believe that this album is a masterpiece from beginning to end, and I I think the track order it was definitely intentional, and I think this song is a song that has to end this album. I completely agree. Uh, just as much as I think Randy described Eternity had to start, this one had to finish it. Definitely, without a doubt, and they're almost not entirely, but they're almost two sides of the same coin. In a way, in a weird way, musically even, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say musically. I, I say that this album kind of blends together a lot musically, and I don't mean that negatively at all. It just it just shows where they were in the writing process at that time. Everything that I can say great about the album is more to do with just his singing, really. I mean, just the, the overall feeling of these songs. And, and this is definitely a song that kind of goes back to that overall theme. I mean, he just he just says, and God is whoever you're performing for. You know, he's just still struggling with that. Well, and, and yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of people can bend that to be like he's he's making an accusation towards an ex or something. But I think I think it is more of a, a statement on faith in, as a whole. And people in, in the world we live in, in a very self-centered world, I think it's more of a statement to be like your religion is is whoever's going to give you the dollar. Your religion is whoever is watching you when when the lights are on. I don't that's how I get from it. I mean, it could very well be about a relationship, but I definitely feel like you, what you say is your religion is not your religion yeah and i and i think like i said when we were speaking about out of sight i feel like those this song and that were kind of counterparts in that they they go together because this is another song where he's he's questioning at the very end he says you know and i feel like this is someone else questioning him he's not questioning this person when the lyrics read why can't you emphasize empathize with jesus's point of view what are you going to do and he's just really saying you know that's again this person being like using that faith almost against someone and that's always been the age-old issue oh yeah i definitely agree with that also this might be me being you know young around the time that this was released but to me it seems like this was right around the time when what would Jesus do bracelets started getting really big. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, I almost feel like th that's kind of a response to that in a that's, way. That's great. I didn't even think of that. That's, that's, 
I, I hope that's what it's about because that would be awesome. That, that makes so much sense. If Do, it is. Doesn't it? Because he's like, well, why don't you empathize with Jesus's point of view? What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and he keeps saying it. He keeps saying, what are you going to do? So let's empathize with Jesus and then tell me what you're going to do. And I do feel like it was right around this time that that whole what would Jesus do bracelet craze kind of swept. Yeah, that was a phenomena. <laughs> it sure was. It, it, it followed slap bracelets by like half a decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, did they make... Uh, what would you just do? Slap bracelets? Did okay. they ever combine the two? Well, I never not, saw this, but if they didn't, you and I have a new marketing plan. <laughs> Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah, that line and God is whoever you're performing for. Just, I mean, we we talked a lot about it already, but it just it bleeds through so hard, almost beyond the rest of this album at times for me. It's it's such a profound line, and I just I, for him just to say it, and that's why I just really feel like he's. That's why I wish I, I could have found something that kind of pointed to his history in terms of uh, his faith or his battles with it. He he doesn't speak very candidly on it in anything that I have read, and I just was not able to come up with anything, but I just have to believe that he just was raised in such a way, and he's just so much battling against it, but it's so ingrained in him by being raised that way that he can't separate it. It's a stitch to his soul kind of a thing, and you know, he's, and he's saying in this one part where he says, and I'd love to see it, but it's something you just feel, and I'd like to feel it, but it just isn't real. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That's great. And that kind of brings me to to another umbrella point about the whole song. And I mean, in an, in a, to an extent, about the album as all. But I feel like one of the main themes of the song is it's about an absence in faith, not just spiritual, but in people in general. But both, like, it's both of those things. It's all about an absence of faith that he's trying to understand. He'd love to feel it, but he he can't because he doesn't believe it exists. I think it's funny that those two things always go hand in hand and i always feel like it's and this is just my opinion that people perceive the the latter in terms of a lot of times uh, a reduction in faith is is caused by the people around you and not necessarily god itself oh i would i would definitely and i think that's what i think that's what he's having a problem with he's like man if if i could just be by myself i think i'd have this figured out but all these people and all these external issues that are coming from these sources of displeasure are just really not allowing me to to exercise faith in a positive manner as the classic saying goes hell is other people but yeah i do think i do maybe you agree with me but i do think musically this feels like the lightest song on the album not lyrically at all but i I, musically it does have the most upbeat feel in the whole album yeah i I could see that i mean it's in comparison to other songs i i feel like this and velvet waltz musically are some of the more complex you know, not in, in terms of like moving around and having these like varying parts and sections, but they just, they're very smooth. They're smoother, I would say, than uh, other songs that can be good, but kind of herky jerky in terms of switching. Well, yeah, like, for example, Made Up Dreams is, is one of those that's kind of like, as much as I love it, and I, I like that aspect of it, it is the transitions almost feel like stop on a dime, move to the next thing. Yeah, and similar to uh, the ending of I Would Hurt a Fly. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different song until the ending, and then that ending just does something weird to it. That's just beautiful and awesome. I really whew, I really don't have much to say I've, I'm more about this song. I feel like, obviously, you can't trust anyone if you're untrustable, so we've kind of cracked all the more decoded messages. Is there something else you'd like to add? Only that I love that he references, this is, of course, about someone else. <laughs> yeah, right, right, untrustable part two. <laughs> this can't be about, this, somebody else, this ain't me. It's, it's it's kind of like you're so vain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. He's like, no, no, no. Somebody else. It's about somebody else. This is part two also, not part one. Is there a part one? I, I, I think... I haven't found a part one or anything like that. I, I think... Just- 
what the title implies is that the first movement is called Untrustable, and beyond that first movement, it's called Part 2 About Somebody Else. I think that's what the title implies, but I could be mistaken. And it's at this point, we've made plenty of jokes about Doug calling in, but I'd, I would love to go on the record saying, Doug Marsh, if you want to talk with me about an album, any album, you just let me know. If you want to come tell us about this album, we'd love that. But yeah, I, th- I think that was his intention, that the first movement is called Untrustable, and then the rest of it's called Part 2 About Somebody Else. And, and I and I agree with that. I, I think I was just having a problem figuring out where that separation went. And I was trying to figure out, is it a separation in lyrics or is it a separation in music? And I just couldn't. It could be either. Yeah. I, I would like to say one thing, and I, I thought this was pretty poignant, of uh, an article. It was a review that was actually done right after the album came out. And I think it sums up a lot of what we've talked about in terms of how much we love his lyrics. This is in the New York Times, which is kind of funny. But he says he pauses between words and breaks lines mid-sentence to create double meanings and suspense that makes lyrics that looks smart on paper seem profound in song and i just i found that a perfect summation of old doug's capabilities and oh yeah he he loves to use the line break he's he's a master at using the line break i think we can put a a close on the the track by track i think we covered stuff pretty well i just anything you'd like to add about the album as a whole before we start signing off I, i think just that's really happy to have done this because like i said i i didn't have as much exposure with this album as as some of the albums more in the 2000s era. And so just to go back and really dive into this for it to become my favorite album now was kind of a, a different experience. Like, like I said, I mean, this was a research project to a certain degree. And I, I, I still feel like I didn't even get as far as I would have liked to. We'll talk about that in the outro. But if anyone who's listening to any audience member, you definitely are encouraged to write into this podcast and tell us stuff we may have missed or stuff that you got out of it that we didn't. And hopefully we'll get, get some good information that way. Yeah, I, I'd just like to close and say that this album... I, this is one of my favorite albums of all time, even if I don't listen to it that much. Without a doubt, if I had to make a list, and granted, as a fan of music and a fan of diverse genres, this list could change every year, but I'm pretty sure no matter what, if I had to make a list of my 100 favorite albums, this album would always be on it. I honestly can't recommend this album to anyone enough, to anyone who ever liked Modest Mouse, to anyone who ever liked The Decemberists, to anyone that ever liked Death Cab for Cutie, you should most likely listen to this album as soon as you possibly can I, I don't think i have anything else to say i really appreciate you being here and talking with me i, I think we've we've uncovered a lot about this album and i look forward to l- listening to it again with a new set of ears that you've helped give yeah i uh have, i had a good time thanks for having me on yeah uh once once again why don't, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find your music at bandcamp bandcamp maslow lionized uh we'll be recording soon both have facebook pages they can check those out and um hopefully you like it hey justin thank you so much for being here and talking with me man thank you jonathan And that brings us to the close of another episode. Some of the projects that Justin mentioned at the top are no longer active. We hope to have him on the show again sometime, and if he has projects by then, he'll promote, and if not, we'll keep you posted on things to come. The next album we will be covering is Aqualong by Jethro Tull. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, or even suggestions for albums or guests, you can find our contact information in the show notes at Facebook, Twitter, or on email. Hope you enjoyed this and thanks for listening.
This podcast is an Abandoned Mascot production and part of the Abandoned Mascot Network, a loose affiliation of podcasts for media arts creators and connoisseurs. For more information, follow us on Twitter at AbandonedMasco1. That's Abandoned, M-A-S-C-O, and the number one. Thanks for listening.